And good morning. I got tickled a few years back as I read this piece from the Washington Post. The Washington Post asked their readers to take any word from the dictionary and alter it by adding or subtracting one letter and then to supply a new definition. Here are a few that I thought were winners. Uh, the word is inoculate. It means to take coffee intravenously when you're running late. Here's another. The Doppler effect. The tendency of stupid ideas to seem smarter when they come at you rapidly. This one's good. Intaxication. The euphoria at getting a tax refund, which lasts until you realize it was your money to start with. <laughs> oh, this one's my favorite. Reincarnation. This is when you die and come back to life as a hillbilly. <laughs> oh, reincarnation. That is my absolute favorite. Uh, the bozone layer. <laughs> it, the bozone is the substance surrounding some of us that stops wisdom from penetrating. <laughs> oh, I think that's it. It is. All right. Well, I read that and thought, you know, sometimes when we read the books of the Bible, some laws just seem to lie somewhere between the boson layer and intoxication. We, we read books like Leviticus, which is what we'll look at some this morning, and we just sort of scratch our heads. There's just something we think, you know, God, I know your word is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, but I'm not real sure how to apply Leviticus to my life. It seems a little strange. Um, some of these laws seem to be honestly irrelevant. When our tour was in Israel several weeks ago, we stopped for lunch at a, a place that had a couple of restaurants side by side. One was a pizza place and one was a hamburger place. And so several of us went to get pizza and several went to get hamburgers, but then the, the place where you would sit and eat was out front. And they had a a concrete wall that went between the two restaurants that separated the two. And we didn't know that that separation was there for a reason. But it was there for a reason, that you weren't supposed to bring one meal over and eat with the other meal because there is a, the, the kosher laws in Leviticus, or laws, I should say the kosher culture in Israel, doesn't want you to mix milk and meat. You can have one or you can have the other, but you can't have both together. And that comes from a, an understanding of Leviticus 34, verse 26. You don't have to turn there. It's where it says, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. So that means don't eat pizza and, hamburg and hamburgers in the, same, in the same place. Well, it means don't mix milk and meat, or at least that's how it's interpreted. And I've often, often thought that that's funny because Abraham himself had no qualms serving milk and meat together. Remember, he did that to the Lord in Genesis 18. He served God milk and meat. But what, what about these kosher laws? I mean, what, what difference did they make in the life, 
the lives of ancient Israel. And honestly, what difference can they make in our lives today? It's got to be more than just don't eat your hamburgers with pizza. So let's look at Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, chapter 11. Leviticus 11 is a chapter that's pretty unlikely too many Christians are going to feel compelled to study the details of it. Because it lists in detail the animals that Israel could or couldn't eat. But in a way, it's also unfortunate because the regulations represented something far more than food. And it shouldn't be missed. If you think about it, one of the very first commands, or, or thou shalt nots, in human existence had to do with food. In the Garden of Eden, the Lord told Adam, you can eat from any tree except one. There was a prohibition against not eating something. And it basically centered around one question, would they obey? But food also had another purpose, as we'll see. If you think about it, when you get together with somebody, food is almost always involved. Family reunions, class reunions, there's food over, over in the corner. You see somebody, you know, hey, let's grab lunch. We never say, hey, let's go to the hardware store together. <laughs> there's food. Food is the center of our fellowship. I mean, how did the early church ever make it without coffee and donuts? <laughs> this morning, we even had cookies to the mix. Food is a major part of our social lives and even our spiritual lives. Leviticus 11, let's look at these, the first part of this chapter, and then we'll talk about it some. Look at these laws. The Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the creatures which you may eat from, all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever divides the hoof, thus making split hoofs, and choose to cut, among the animals that you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these among those which chew the cud or among those which divide the hoof. The camel, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. Likewise, the shafan, which is also the rock badger or the coney in other translations, the shafan, for though it chews cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. The rabbit also, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. And the pig, for though it divides the hoof, that making a split hoof, it does not chew the cud, it is unclean to you. You shall not eat fish, you shall not eat of the flesh, I didn't say fish, you shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their carcasses, they are unclean to you. Why are these animals chosen? I've read quite a few creative attempts to try to figure out the basis of it. And I, now some say it's for health reasons, and there may be some legitimacy to that. Though when Jesus makes all food clean eventually, then you call into question, well, now is everything healthy? So it can't just be a health issue. Notice the repeated command or the re repeated phrase, unclean to you. There is, there is something that God is beginning to do to the Hebrews. The unclean animals, these dietary commands basically represented a microcosm of Israel's culture. The unclean animals represented the unclean nations. 
The clean animals represented the Hebrew nation, and the sacrificial animals represented the priests. We understand this from the larger context of Scripture. The purpose of the foods was to give an illustration and to basically give a practical um, application of this separation. Foods separate us, and they still separate us. If you think about it, it's true. I remember one time on an overseas mission trip, we weren't there 10 minutes, and we were ushered to the pastor's home where his wife had graciously prepared us a meal. And I sat down and looked at this dish in front of me that I asked what it was, and they said something in, in the language, and later come to fi find out what the translation was. It was uh, herring, which is fish, with purple beets mixed with mayonnaise smeared on top. And I, I confess, I had, I had one bite in my, in my mouth, and my body literally rejected it. It was terrible. It was terrible. And if it wasn't for the glass of water that was close at hand that I literally just went, just drank it down, I would not have kept this herring with purple beets. It was, it was bad. But she served it to us because to them it's a delicacy. It was a very thoughtful thing. So I was so glad that I choked it down. But... Um, I know of another culture that takes the head of a hog and makes warm soup, and then they stick it in the fridge, and when it sets, they take it out and they eat it cold with a spoon. <laughs> I kid you not. Now, you and I obviously would say this is gross, but to the Jew or to the Hebrew, it, was being, it wasn't just gross, it was sacrilegious. And there's a practical aspect to this because it's not too endearing to a woman to have someone gag on your meal. It separates us, doesn't it? If someone is disgusted with the food you eat, it's going to be really hard to have a close relationship with them. I mean, we laugh, but seriously, think about it. You're not going to fellowship with someone that the food that they love makes you absolutely sick. You just won't do it. We're picky about what we eat, and we don't eat what we don't like to eat. If you don't like Italian food, you're probably not going to go to an Italian restaurant. And thus, Italian culture will not influence you. That's the point. God wasn't using food just to say, take this food, don't take this food, but he was creating a culture of acquired taste that would keep them separate from the pagan cultures that had different acquired tastes and would keep them apart, not just for food's sake, but because those cultures, along with the cultures, came foreign gods, and God was keeping his people distinct. The purpose was to teach people to make a distinction between what is clean and unclean or what is holy and unholy. Now, we won't read the rest of the details of the chapter. We can simply just kind of glance down through it and summarize. But if you'll look down through the rest of chapter 11, verses 9 through 43 speak of various kinds of animals. Just kind of glance through it and you'll see. There are animals that are in the water. There are animals that fly. There are, there are dead animals. There are creeping animals, swarming animals. But then there's a summary Look all the way down in verse 44. 
there's a summary which contains the timeless truth of the whole chapter. Here's why they were to eat or not eat or not touch certain animals. Verse 44. God says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Twice we're told in these two verses, I am the Lord, your God, your God. And because I am your God, you are to be holy because I'm holy. The reason that we live holy lives is because God is holy and he is our God. And therefore, we live a life that emulates our God. Have you ever walked out of a movie? I remember one time Kathy and I were in this movie. We weren't in it for probably five minutes. And I just turned to her and said, do you mind if we leave? She said, let's go. So we walked out. I remember reading about the uh, Emmy Award-winning actress Patricia Heaton was asked why she walked out in the middle of one of the American Music Awards one year, and she said this. She said, what was passing for humor basically ranged from stupid to vulgar, and I just thought, I'm not going to be a part of this. Consecrate yourselves, these verses say. What does that mean? Consecrate comes from the Hebrew word that basically comes from the same word as to be holy. It means to separate yourself from all that is not pure, from all that is evil. Why? He told them, you shall not make yourselves unclean. You can be in a clean state, but if you put yourself in a context that's unclean, then you can be drawn into that and you can become unclean yourself. The Hebrews didn't separate from people doing evil because they were better than them, but rather so that they were not enticed to participate. When we think of something that's unclean in the Old Testament, a lot of times we'll equate it with something sinful. But it isn't always that way. Sometimes unclean simply didn't relate to sin, it just related to status. There were some normal things that you'd do in life that would, make, that would qualify you as unclean. For example, giving birth, having some kind of a skin disease, or burying a dead relative. These normal. Nothing, nothing sinful in that. But what, was, what, what made it unclean was these were circumstances that were outside the range of normal life. Like if you, if you had to bury someone who had died that was an unusual circumstance. That was not the norm. That was not what was the normal situation. So, only, for example, only flawless animals were sacrificed. Only physically normal priests could serve. Only people in normal conditions could worship. Only normal clothing was to be worn. 
Only normal houses could be inhabited. And if any of these were non-normal for whatever reason, even if they were for legitimate reasons, they had to be cleansed. So the, so the situation basically required action. When Jesus walked around healing people in his ministry on earth, he basically gave a preview of what he was going to do in his kingdom. Remember, his message was that. The kingdom of God is at hand, so repent. And so when he would walk around and he would heal people, he would give a preview of what it would be like in the kingdom of God. He would heal people and say, I, this is what the kingdom of God's going to be like. And a non-normal person, he'd make normal. You can't see, now you can see. You can't walk, now you can walk. You got a skin disease, now you're clean. Interesting, whenever he would touch someone, they would not make him unclean, he would make them clean. And that was a preview of what the kingdom of God will be like. As Christians, though, gratefully, we have a confidence that all of our physical impurities, all of our non-normalness needn't exclude us from fellowship with God. Because through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are, we are considered holy in God's sight. Even if uh, we aren't practically holy right now, we are considered holy. So why do we live lives of holiness? Well, the text we just read gave us three reasons there in verse 44 and 45. Several reasons. First of all, because he is our God. We're holy. We live lives that are holy because he's our God. He's our God. He's personally our God. Second, because he is holy. And finally, because he has redeemed us. He says there in verse 45, I'm the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. I redeemed you. I saved you. I brought you out of your situation of slavery. Therefore, I want you to be holy like I'm holy. From our perspective, we are given that exact same motivation. We saw this when we looked at Leviticus last, last time. That the motivation to live a life that follows God, is one of them is because he graciously saved us from our slavery to sin. Well, let's look at a few New Testament passages as well that take the same principle and help us apply it. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter actually quotes this verse. 1 Peter chapter 1. I heard about a accountability partner that a couple of guys decided one guy was having a lot of trouble cussing. And he said, you know, I need somebody to help me quit cussing. And so Paul was his name. So Paul goes to Bill and says, Bill, would you help me? I, I need some accountability and Paul says, here's what I'd like to do. Every week, I'm going to tell you how many times I cussed. And for every time I cussed, I'm going to put $5 in the offering plate. And Bill says, okay, well, I'll, I'll see you next week. So next week rolls around, Sunday rolls around, and Paul kind of shuffles in looking, looking like, you know, like he's failed. Bill comes over and says, well, I mean, it looks like you probably cussed this week. How many times did you cuss? He says, well, I need to put $100 in the plate today. So Plunk writes a check for $100. This goes on for several weeks until finally Bill comes up to Paul and says, you know, next week it's going to be different. Next week it's going to be completely different. Next week is called grace. It's going to cost you, 
both less and more. And Paul says, what do you mean? He says, I'll see you next week. So next week rolls around, and uh, Paul walks in, and of course, he has struggled with cussing that week. And what Bill did is he, he basically wrote a check to the church. Bill wrote a check to the church and left the amount blank, handed it to Paul and said, there, you fill it in. Whatever it is, I'm paying for it. And imagine that, how terrible you would feel. And this is how Paul felt. And so he had to write in the amount, what, whatever the amount was, he wrote the amount in. And this went on for a couple of, a couple of weeks until finally Paul was so uh, compelled by realizing of what was going to have to happen that someone else was paying for the fact that he was cussing, that, he dis- that, that that was a motivation for him to absolutely quit. You know, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but I read that and thought, you know, that's a lot like we are, that we obey the Lord not because we can get away with it, in the sense Paul could have taken advantage of that, right? Oh, you're going to pay for it, Bill? Great. I'll have a great week of cussing. But he didn't. It was just the opposite. Realizing that Bill was going to pay for it, it motivated Paul to live a life that didn't make that have to happen. And in the same way, that's the way it is with us. We don't, we live holy lives, not because we know we can get away with it, even though we could. Jesus has died on the cross for all of our sins, past present, and future. So, you want to sin today? Don't tell him I said you could do it, but you could. And Christ's death has paid for that. But we don't live that way, do we? We want to live holy lives, not because we can get away with it, but because out of gratitude for what Jesus has done. To me, the striking truth of Leviticus, the whole book, but even Leviticus 11, is how far holiness reaches into our lives. There's no part of who we are that isn't holy. Peter uses these verses from Leviticus and answers the same question in his day. Why be holy? 1 Peter 1, look down at verse 14. He says, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but... Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, and then he quotes what we just read in Leviticus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter is drawing from Leviticus's principle because, remember, in Leviticus, he was saying, be holy because I've taken you out of Egypt. Peter draws from that exact same context, quotes that context, be holy for I am the Lord, and then he assigns the Passover lamb, which was true in the book of Exodus, as Jesus Jesus is our Passover lamb to us. We We were purchased, or literally we were redeemed, verse 18, not with things like gold and silver. We were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, that is the Passover lamb, Jesus unblemished and spotless, 
the blood of Christ. Why do we live lives that are holy? Peter gives us the exact same reason, because he's our God, he is holy, and he's redeemed us. I remember when I was in, uh, I guess it was junior high, it was about the eighth grade, our school tried to scare us about not using drugs, and they did it by showing us a movie. They showed us quite a few movies. I remember one that was trying to teach us kilometers, <laughs> and this guy was in his car, and he saw that the, the, the speed limit on it said 90. And so he thought, 90, and his face gets all crazy, 90, and he starts driving 90 miles an hour. And what he didn't realize is it was 90 kilometers, which is about 55 miles an hour. Anyway, that was supposed to teach us, even though, when are we going to see signs that say 90? But anyway. But there was a movie about trying to scare us about not doing drugs. And in this movie, basically, there was this film about a party where students were using drugs, and this particular student passes out. He's rushed to the hospital, and they call his parents, and the mom was crying, and the dad was crying, and they stick his arms with needles, and they put tubes up his nose. And it just, it sort of seemed like the, the moral of this story was, the moral of the movie is, don't do drugs or they're going to stick needles in your veins. They'll put t- tubes up your nose and your parents will cry. <laughs> Later in driver's ed class, when they filmed scenes of car wrecks, uh, and they had paramedics, you know, that would, they would, before the paramedics would get there, they'd show pictures of these car wrecks. I mean, I don't know if they still do this in schools, but we were like seeing pictures of bodies laying there. And this was to motivate us not to drive recklessly. Here's the crazy thing. We've all known people that were aware that this is what happens when you do drugs. This is what happens when you drive recklessly. And yet, people still do drugs and still drive recklessly. Why? Andy Andy Stanley says this. Sounds like a cartoon character if you say it wrong. Andy Stanley, he says, We have many preferences, yet we have very few convictions. I think that's a good reason. That we all could agree on a, on a level of preference or on a level of agreement that, it's, that we need to live holy lives. But we have so few convictions about really doing it. Really doing it. Flip back a few books to Mark chapter 7. Got a couple of more passages here applying this. Mark chapter 7. Andrew Murray, the great pastor of yesteryear, said this The chief mark of counterfeit holiness is its lack of humility. Every seeker after holiness needs to be on his guard lest unconsciously what was begun in the Spirit be perfected in the flesh, and pride creep in where its presence is least expected. Holiness. Holiness is to extend to every single part of our lives, even eating. You know, the kosher laws may no longer apply to us as Christians, but that doesn't mean that eating doesn't have a huge part of our spiritual lives, and it does. We'll see that in the New Testament. Eating is no small matter. It's, in fact, it's often a great opportunity to display holiness in our lives. 
Jesus understood that kosher food was a means to teach a higher principle. Mark chapter 7, look down at verse uh, 18. Mark 7, 18. This is the, um, the parable that he's telling. But he says, he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus is making the point that it's not food, per se, that defiles you. He says it's not what goes in that makes you unclean, as it were. He says it's the heart that comes out. That's what defiles us. And then Mark adds that parenthetical statement there in verse 19, that Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus is beginning this transition now from the end of the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. But Jesus' point is simply this, that holiness is not merely following a set of rules. Holiness is conforming to God, to being like God. We be, we, we're holy because he's holy. All right, one more spot, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. This is the story of Peter in and uh, Cornelius. Cornelius is in Caesarea by the Mediterranean Sea, gets a vision from the Lord to go and have Peter, who is in Joppa, south of Caesarea, go get Peter and bring him back up here and let's, uh, have, let you hear a message. Interesting, there was already an evangelist in Caesarea named Philip. Philip had lived there a long time. Why in the world? Did the Lord say, go get Peter, it's going to be another three days before you see him, because it wasn't just a matter of converting Cornelius, it was a matter of helping Peter grow. And sometimes, if you think about it, it's a great principle right there, God isn't always efficient in our lives. Sometimes he'll take the long way around the barn, because his goal for us is not just to follow a set of rules or to get from A to B but our character, our growth, that we, that we may be like God, that we may grow. Well, this was his desire for Peter's life. Acts chapter 10, look down at verse 10, and let's read what happened here with Peter. Acts 10.10, 10, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. 
But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken back into the sky. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, Behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. So here's the irony of Acts chapter 10 and the great pivot that the Lord is bringing about in, uh, in this chapter. And you know the significance of it because all of chapter 10 and all of chapter 11 are devoted to this incident and the explaining of this incident because this is a big deal in the life of a Jew of the first century. The irony is just as the kosher laws of the Old Testament kept God's people apart from the nations, it was the abolishment of the kosher laws here in Acts chapter 10, which Peter struggled against, that now took God's people to the nations. The Gentiles, were you were to keep separate from them in the Old Testament. You were to be your own person. You were to be apart from them and to be clean. But now, when God wanted his people to go to the nations, he removed the, the food scruples. He removed the acquired taste, as it were, or the laws that said, now you can eat bacon. Now you can have a ham sandwich. <laughs> of course, Peter recoiled against this because it was against everything that he had ever learned. And yet here we have Jesus. Notice he is addressing Jesus in verse 14. He says, by no means, Lord. Jesus is telling Peter to eat these unclean animals. And it, not because Jesus wants Peter to have bacon. Jesus wants Peter to go to Cornelius's. Jesus wants Peter now to go to the nation's. And though, even though Jesus put bacon back on the menu, eating still remains an important indicator of holiness, even for us as Christians. Let me give you a few examples. When Jesus ate with sinners, he was, he was condemned for that, wasn't he? You're eating with sinners. And he said, it, well, it's, it, it, it's the sinners, it's the, the sick who need a physician. It's okay. If your goal in fellowshipping with others is to reach out to them, then you can eat with sinners. Jesus did it. You can go, like Peter, to Cornelius' house. If your goal in mixing with those who don't know the Lord is to bring them to the Lord, fantastic. But obviously, we need to be careful. Just remember who is influencing whom. It can go both ways. Second, when we eat the Lord's Supper, when we eat the Lord's Supper... It's a memorial, and it implies our fellowship with God and our fellowship with others. And then the scriptures also tell us not to eat with certain believers who are under church discipline. You're not, you're not to eat with them, meaning you're not to have fellowship with them. Eating symbolizes that as well. And of course, believers are to be self-controlled, which is a part of holiness that extends even to eating. Something we don't talk about much at all in our circles is gluttony, is it? 
Paul wrote that everything created by God is good, nothing's to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. But we also have what the Proverbs say, have you found honey? Eat only what you need, lest you have it in excess and vomit it. What wisdom. Paul summarized it well. Listen to what Paul wrote. He said, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So, kosher laws. The kosher laws were a reminder of God's grace and their duty to live for God in this life. That's why even when the kosher laws no longer apply to us, that the principle behind it still applies to us. The goal was never just food, but it's what that allowed us to do, to stay separate, to stay holy, to stay focused on God. That should still be happening, even no matter what we eat. We should still be focusing on living a holy life. Holiness means we make a distinction between the way we live and the way the world lives, not because we're better than the world, but because we serve a better God. Well, look at this. We're going to get out 10 minutes early. We'll beat the Baptist to Luby's. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, how many times do we open the Bible in the rush of our day in a reading program or for whatever reason we come across a passage that seems, well, it seems frankly to be irrelevant. And yet if we look at the timeless truth behind every single verse of this wonderful book, we see the principle of holiness. It's a standard we fail. It's a standard we fail. Thank you that Jesus Christ, in his great grace, died on the cross to pay for our sins. Thank you that his mercy in providing that forgiveness is offered to anyone, the Bible says, who will simply believe. And Father, we pray for any who might be here today without Jesus Christ without a trust in Him and in Him alone as the basis of their salvation. Not their good works, not church attendance, not giving, not being a kind or good person, but having Jesus Christ who died for their sins. Would you grant them the gift of faith today? And Lord, as we look at applying this somewhat obscure book of Leviticus, particularly these kosher laws to our life. Thank you for the principle behind it, the principle of living a holy life, of living better than the world, not because we're better than the world, but because the God we serve is holy and we want to be like you. Strengthen us today that we may live lives that honor you and Strengthen us also with the knowledge that when we don't, because often we don't, that we have the great promise that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. All we have to do is merely bow our head and pray.
and we are back in fellowship with you, for which we're grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, next week, numbers.